J.T. Crowley is Talking Books. On this show, you'll hear from emerging talent and seasoned veterans from around the world. Hello, I'm J.T. Crowley, and I'm delighted to invite on the show today, David B. Mamina, from Long Island, New York, in the United States. He's here to talk about three of his books he has written, The Angels of Resistance, Torn Asunder, and his latest book, Death or Valentus, which he has just released. His books have won numerous awards, and you can find out more about those awards and all of his books on his webpage, everybody, www.maminabooks.com, as well as a new deck-building card game, which is there for you to play and have a look at it. I did. I thought it was fun. You know, you can build, you know, your front lines, you know, with warriors and sorcerers from the characters in the books, plus defeat your opponents, forces, and the evil that dwells within the deck. These books are dark fantasy, gothic horror, steampunk novels. And I said, if you want to know what steampunk is, go and look at my narrative or go and look at his webpage. I had to. <laughs> I've never heard of it before, steampunk. There you go. You learn something new every day. David has been writing for some time, a passion you could possibly say stems back to his childhood. Apart from writing, David teaches history to middle school students with learning disabilities, a job, a career he thoroughly enjoys. Now, David and I have known each other for a year or two, so I am very pleased he accepted my invite to come on the show again to talk about some of his new books, especially his latest book, Death or Valentus. So let's bring him on to find out what he has to say about his books. David, come and join me. John, thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. And you're right, uh, we have known each other for a little over a year. Uh, so you know all the stuff that I've that I've written and you know how proud I am uh, to be writing and to be teaching. Um, so, uh, as I said before, I can't wait to share my work with you. I know, but David, before we actually go into the books, you know, immerse ourselves into the books, can you tell the audience a little about yourself? Why this writing passion of yours? Where does it come from? Where does it stem from? And why these genres, this dark fantasy, this steampunk, (laughs) you know, and it's your dream. That's a great question. Um, but it's your dream here to be yeah, a multi-million I mean, award-selling uh, author. And what is that what drives you, or is it something else? Is it just the sheer joy of writing the books? Tell us. All right. Well, it, I, I'd say it all started with being a, uh, a child, growing up in the 80s, watching uh, Saturday morning cartoons, playing uh, – video games, reading comic books. I was uh, a very imaginative child. I still am, obviously. Um, But I would sort of free write stories uh, just to be uh, creative, just to try something new, to invent my own characters and have some fun with it. And that was what I did for many years. And uh, and deep into high school, um, my English teacher, Mr. Sullivan, I'll never forget him, uh, I was writing something fun in my my class of his, and he caught me writing it. And he said, oh, I'd love to check this out. Let me read this. 
And for me, it was something fun. But for him, he saw an opportunity to inspire me and to get me motivated to take this to another level. And one period, he actually brought it up to the other kids as I was sitting there. And he said, wow, I read the chapter. I thought it was so great. There's a lot of potential here. And I felt so good. He made me feel great. And that's when I started to think, maybe I should really do something with this. And um, I did have a dream that uh, the world <laughs> was going to blow up. And it was an asteroid, and we did everything we could to stop it, but we were too busy fighting ourselves. Uh, and that kind of scared me, but in a way, it was sort of prolific in the, in the sense that, uh, here, look at where we are now, in a sense, uh, and how far we've come. And I thought, what would happen if uh, something like this did uh, occur? Would we be able to put aside all of our differences and work together to stop something so traumatic? Uh, and he's the one that sort of put me on that track to start writing things like this. And uh, you asked me about um, why dark fantasy. Mm. I love fantasy, um, but I, I like the realism, uh, the, the true terror of dark fantasy that it makes me feel like this fantasy is sort of real and uh, it matters and it's it's a lot more relevant than some high fantasy with dwarves and elves. Uh, this is much more terrifying. And I sort of do like to sneak into that genre. So do you, is your dream to be a multi-million selling author? Uh, I'll tell you, I don't even know what that is or what it would feel like. Uh, of course, I'm supposed to say yes. You are I, supposed that to say is yes. my dream. <laughs> <laughs> that's my dream. I have to say yes, that's what I want. Uh, yeah. But I'm at the part where if I can share my work with others and uh, and I could walk around my, my town and not be uh, bombarded by media or anything, if I could live that perfect balance of sharing my, my work living a happy life, knowing that people like what I've done, written, and I've inspired them in some way, that's my dream. I'd be really happy with that. And you know, David, I have to say, great choice of name for your teacher, Mr. Sullivan, because my mum, who came from New York, her name was Sullivan. There you go. It was meant to be. It was meant to be. Now, David, let's have a look at your new book, Death or Valentus. Now, you say that this book would be a perfect read for fans of gothic horror, dark fantasy, and steampunk. I have to confess, as I've already said, I've never heard of the genre of steampunk until now. And for those of you that aren't sure, well, go and have a look at his website to see what steampunk is all about and all his other books there as well. Or the written introduction that accompanies this podcast. So, David, to the narrative of this book. Here we have a fiendish figure engages in a precarious mission to set free his nemesis from a perverted cult. Valentus is a necromancer, a black magic sorcerer, whose formidable powers involve raising corpses to do his bidding and leading vast armies of the undead playing by his own rules and partnering up with an exceptionally talented vampire who would give no second thought to slicing off Valentus's head if he suspected betrayal. So, David, 
you have two very powerful collaborators in this book. And you would think they could easily control their own destiny. But like in so many of your books, you've got to expect the unexpected, everybody. Believe you me. So I found this book extremely engaging. But I'm asking the question, because I thought to myself, why did he write this book? And who did he intend for it to be read by? But more importantly, why the story? So why did you write it? Who are you writing it for? And why the storyline? Yeah, you know what, John? I didn't even intend on writing this book. This book snuck up on me. This wasn't something where I thought, oh, this would be a cool story. Let me start plotting this out. It was in the back of my mind as I was actually writing um, Torn Asunder. And it was in my mind and I sort of had to push it away a little bit. But I started to write some notes about it. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if uh, a detective sorts could solve crimes by resurrecting the victim? or by resurrecting the criminal and asking the questions because this person who's resurrected can only tell the truth. Uh, there's no emotion to it. So he's the ideal detective. The thing is he has the power to raise the dead. So that is sort of uh, profane. Uh, you'd think you're desecrating bodies, but as far as he's concerned, he's brought them back to a state of living. Uh, where they could be useful. Um, so I thought that was a really intriguing approach. Then I thought, wouldn't it be interesting, even so, to have his nemesis, who would essentially be the hero of the story, be the one who would need saving this time? And what kind of predicament would that put a character who is offered this opportunity, and he'd have to have his own sort of uh, goals and aims to do this, uh, to want to uh, to save someone who he despises. Uh, and that's why he works with this vampire. The vampire loves this woman. So they have to work together, two of the most powerful beings, you'd say. But uh, they're both very wary of each other, very distrustful. Uh, until the story progresses and you start to see, uh, much like we discussed earlier, Sometimes you have to rely on your enemy uh, to survive and, and get to know them more and to try to understand goals and say, you know what, maybe we should align our goals if only to survive. So I okay. thought that was a really cool idea. Okay, let's have a look at the book. Um, but yeah. just to give the audience a sample of the book, uh, David, let's turn to two of the 10 chapters because this story everybody's told about 10 action-packed, thrilling dark fantasy chapters, beautifully written um, with, you know, il some uh, illustrations, some little drawings in pictures in the book. Absolutely amazing. But let's get cracking here and let's start with chapter two, which you give the title, Three Years Lost, One Golden Peril. You set the scenes in the Apparatus Brand Center, Cell Block X and the Fractum Laboratory. We have the necromancer, Volentus, imprisoned. Dragon the vampire, who has been woken up by Mr. Kayser and Dr. Thaddeus, who have found themselves in a very, very 
pressing predicament. What's the narrative here? And why does this chapter in your eyes carry so much weight in the overall concept of this book? Thank you for that question. Um, this chapter is very critical in setting up the entire plot of the book. So it says three years lost. He's been in prison for three years. He has. Uh, yes. And ironically, he's in prison for three years because he was uh, thwarted and detained by his nemesis. So you could imagine the state of uh, revenge or this, this thirst or taste of vengeance that he's waiting for somehow. He wants that opportunity. But the opportunity that's given to him uh, instead is we need your help in aiding uh, an operation which Dragon is going to spearhead. And Dragon has to convince Valentis to help him with information about this very deadly land, uh, how to traverse it, where this cult is, where do you think she could be held? And he takes the opportunity to say, if you want my help, you're going to have to let me out of here and I'll help you presently because you'll never survive in that land on your own. Um, Dragon understands this is someone I can't trust, but I need to save this person because not only is she important, she's a love of my life but I have to be careful because this is his nemesis. So it, it's a, a perfect um, launching off point, I think, for the entire story. It's, it's really exciting to see their dynamics sort of bounce off each other. And they do bounce, bounce off each other, everybody, but they are very mistrustful of each other. It wouldn't take much to tip the balance. Does the balance tip? Well, if you want to know, read the book. <laughs> now, I can't say better than that. Now, David, the other chapter you wanted to highlight for being another significant chapter was chapter five, uh, which you give the title, All That Matters. Now, when I looked at this part of the book, what stood out for me was the scene around Nightmare Garden, which you start off by saying, I quote, having trekked for over an hour deep in the recesses of Engard's barren lands of crags, fissures, and hazardous valleys, Dragon and Valentus are held up at a hill overlooking the rock face of Valcanic in the distance. Now, you have other scenes in this chapter, um, which you put under Mad Science, Dungeon, Revelations, and Deafening Irony. Why the storylines and scenes here, and how important, again, is this chapter in relation to the overriding story in the book. Are you ramping this storyline up here? Oh, very much so. This is the key chapter that uh, sort of flips the story on its head. So you think you're going somewhere. Uh, it all seems uh, awfully predictable. You know, it's very linear. You figure these two characters are going to try to save this person. Uh, what happens is they do invade um, the, uh, the the bulwark, I guess, in the mountain of this cult. And uh, without spoiling anything, um, Valentis changes uh, almost in a dime because for him, he is the the other side of a coin to his nemesis. 
So he sees his, his nemesis as this very powerful woman. Uh, she was able to, to beat him when no one else really could uh, because of her power, as you'll learn in the book. But when he finally sees her in the state she's in, uh, something changes in him. And he's sort of angry, not for her. He's angry that how could you do this to my opponent? This is not my adversary. What it, did you ruin her like this? And instead of this vengeance he has for her, it almost goes away immediately where he sees what's happened to her and how she suffered. And now he thinks you'll pay for what you did to her. This was supposed to be my vengeance. And what you did to her, I wouldn't even have done. You went too far. And I think it, it sort of changes him as a character. He still has that, that villainous spark in him of playing by his own rules. But um, now the reader is going to look at him a little different. Uh, it's always a little difficult to predict what Valentis is thinking or what he's planning. But at this moment, the reader can finally say, I, I can relate to this person uh, pretty profoundly. Hmm. That's that book, everyone. And as I said, if you want to find out more, go to his webpage, have a look, and there you can get his books and see what the stories are all about. But, David, let's turn to um, another book, Torn Asunder. Um, you know, this is one of your highly creative books, and this story touches upon the traumatic end of the Knight Templar, Templars, a remnant brand of knights in hiding, attempting to forge new lives for themselves in the Eastern Byzantine Empire. They're kind of reduced to shepherding duties, taking merchants and pilgrims through perilous lands, in particular escorting a girl to safety. In times of dangerous clans of assassins and encroaching Ottoman forces. And of course, you were writing this, and as you just said, you were thinking of death and Volantis, which I thought, ah, oh, so he writes one, but he's thinking of another one. How clever. My question to you is Was this book, um, Torn Asunder, a labor of love to write? But I'm more intrigued as to why you chose the topic and the subject matter and the storylines here and the characters. Yeah, you know what? This was sort of another book I didn't think I was going to write. I was actually teaching um, the lesson about the Knights Templar to my students. And uh, every time I do, uh, there's sort of this fascination with them. And uh, all of this uh, mythology and these legends that sort of stem from them. Um, you know, we think of like Friday the 13th as this unlucky day. Well, legend has it. That's one of the reasons why Friday the 13th is an unlucky day. That's the day that King Philip had the Knights Templar rounded up and killed for no reason, really, other than he didn't want to have to pay their debts. So things like that. Um, but uh for me, I thought it was very exciting because I said, you know what, let me just do research on it and see where they are and where they've been. And the more research I did, the more I began to realize, I think I should write something about this, uh, write about the Templars that were able to escape and, uh, and what their story would be about. And the more I thought about this, the more I said, this is something now I have to write. 
that's how it started. Mm, fascinating. Now, David, you and I talked about uh, before we came on and did this podcast, you know, we've been chatting for several weeks, you know, putting together what's going to go in this podcast interview. And in this book, um, you know, I asked you what chapters best you thought reflected the storyline and what I thought reflected the storyline, you know, the subject matter. Now, you opted for chapters three in Act One, Honoured Pass, and eight, chapter eight in Act Two, The Lion's Moor. Why those two chapters, David? Clearly, they're important to you. So let's start with Honoured Pass. What are you doing here? Where are you taking the reader? What are you getting them involved with? Yeah, well, you know what? This is the first chapter that the reader begins to realize this mission that they took on to go pick up this girl from safety and then uh, escort her somewhere safe. Um, this is the chapter where everything uh, sort of blows up in their face. The reader realizes this is not just going to be a mission that they were hoping would be sort of an easy thing. Um, Honored Pass is sort of uh, on... In, in history, uh, there was something called uh, the long road. And you would take this long road all the way to Jerusalem, you, you could, and there were many different stops. And this is a stop. And they're sleeping, or they're trying to sleep, and they realize they've been uh, pursued by assassins, them personally, and they're under attack, and they have to fight for their lives uh, so early in their mission. And they realize this girl is not just uh, another mission this is a do or die mission now for us. We haven't had to fight like this since we were Templars. Uh, it sort of awakens this uh, this need to survive and wonder, is this mission worth it? What have you got us stuck into this time? Um, and I think the readers start to realize there's going to be high stakes here. And The Lion's Moor? The Lion's Moor is one of my favorites. Uh, they have the girl. Oh, yeah. They have the girl. Right. Yeah, yeah. They have the girl, and uh, they realize she's a lot more than what she seems. Um, uh, they are uh, sort of pigeonholed um, by this assassin group. And the head of the assassin group is called uh, the Risen Lion. And uh, he's sort of cornered them, and it's time to make a decision here. The Risen Lion wants to take the girl away for a reason you'll find out. And the Templars have to decide, should we finish this mission the right way? Should we uh, keep her safe or should we just let her go and just go about our way? We're not warriors anymore. What should we do? And their decision is to fight. Uh, so this is uh, a Christian group protecting a Muslim girl. And I think this is the moment of the book where the readers can finally say the Templars have made not just their honorable choice, uh, their moral choice. Very exciting. And when you look at the chapter, everybody, it's beautifully written. And the storyline is just amazing. But I have a chapter that I wanted to go to. And... 
for me, uh, I found the most fascinating section of your book here was um, Act 3, strangely enough, especially um, the first chapter there, One Night in Caraza. And I hope I pronounced that right. Now, very briefly, um, for we do not, for we have other books to go and have a look at. David, what's the background going on in this section of the book? I understand you won't want to give too much away because we are getting towards the end of the book. But could you just tell the audience what's this scene about in this chapter? And is this a clue as to what is going to follow towards the end? Uh, You are 100% right. This is sort of a setup uh, chapter to the big one, uh, essentially the the climax. And what's happening here is they're in Caraza. They made it. Uh, They're just about to dawn on the finale of their mission. And then they think, did we do the right thing? And it's each of the soldiers talking about their dreams that they had. And are these dreams relevant? And do they have to, do they actually apply to her? Is it because of her or is it because of our past or whatever it is? This is the chapter that sets up uh, essentially the the fruits of their labor or the doom uh, of their choices. So it's, it's a great chapter you chose there, John. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, when they get interviewed, um, get the feeling that the person who's doing the interview really doesn't read their books. Um, but they've just got a general set of questions. Well, let me reassure you, I read the books, I scan the books, and I make my own decisions as to where to go to. Yes, I listen to what the author has to say, but I also make my own decisions. And that was one of them, because that's what I thought it was. It was the beginning of the end. And he was right. It was a good choice for me to pick. But I knew that because I'd read the book, which is so important, especially for authors. They appreciate the fact that the interviewers actually spent time looking about their work and talking to them about their work and looking at their book. Thank you. Now, as I've already said, um, we've got another book to look at. I spread down three books. So here's the third one. The Angels of Resistance. Now, this is a whopper, everyone. It really is. Uh, the paperback version has 653 pages to it. So it's not an overnight read and it's not a bedtime read. It's It's got to be a book that you sit down and spend time with and look at it because it's deep, it's dark, it's mysterious. And it's David Mamina at his best. So this book tells the tale of 1,000 years after the assumed apocalypse. A demonic army known as the Demon Plague has invaded the New World. We have various races and cultures split by their differences. One man, Michael Morell, joins forces with various warriors to unite the rival kingdoms, to defeat the demon plague. But the kingdoms have to bury their old wounds. Will they? 
what I want to know here, David, is what inspired you to write this epic novel, which you put out in 2015. So this is one of your early books. I have to say it took me some time to go through. <laughs> but I found it intriguing. I found it interesting. It captured me. It gripped me. But I want you to tell the audience why it's so gripping, it's so encapturing, and why you wrote it. Sure, John. Thank you. You know, this is the book I I wrote first, um, and I I try to tell people you might not be into fantasy, uh, even uh, let alone dark fantasy, but give this one a shot. This is a book I think that I wrote for everyone. Uh, it is dark, but there is uh, hope in it, which is what I like. Um, there's a lot of characters uh, to pick from. There's a lot of characters you'll find yourself uh, relating to. But what I love about it is um, it's a movie in your hands. So you said it's about 600 something pages. It reads like a 200 page book when you really get into it. And I think it's because I've worked really hard on it. Uh, I've written about three different editions to it. So over time, I've tried to, uh, uh, to perfect it. But this is the story that I started with. This is the profound uh, launching off point for me as an author. Uh, and I think, as you said, this is me at my best. I think this is my favorite book. Um, and I'll, I'll always go back to it. I just love it so much. And that's why when we decided as to what three books to talk about in this podcast, you said The Angels of Resistance has to go in. And yeah. I understand why. So, okay, let's, let's give the audience, you know, a taste of what this book's about. Now, David, prior to coming on the show, I asked you, again, to highlight two chapters that in your eyes best uh, reflect the overriding subject matter within. Now, you chose in part one, chapter 11, the smoking embers. And in part two, again, chapter 11, the reckoning. Why? Let's start with the smoking embers. Okay. So these are two chapters that are a, uh, a perfect dichotomy of each other. So in part one, uh, smoking embers is a chapter where the heroes have fled uh, the battle. The battle is over. Uh, they, the kingdom was able to survive, but that was just the first wave. So what these heroes are doing are uh, is they're trying to get uh, certain royalty and very important people out of the city. And they are fleeing to another place, and it's nighttime, and they're around the fire. And this is such a perfect opportunity for the author to let the story breathe, for the reader to really... Um, understand the motivations of these characters and how they sort of um, have to work together now with what they have. They've just fled something extremely tra uh, traumatic. Um, what are their thoughts on this about working together? What do they want to do? How are they feeling? Well, what's what's happening uh, now? So around the fire, almost the entire chapter takes place like that. And it's just an incredible scene of uh, character development. And I think the reader was introduced to these characters. Now the reader knows these characters. Um, the other one, 
Uh, were you going to say something, John? I'm no, sorry. no, no, the Rackney. Okay, no problem. The other chapter in the second part uh, is the perfect opposite. It's the amalgamation of these characters' decision to uh, uh, sneakily attack the demon plague uh, at their own turf. And it's a very risky maneuver, but they feel they know the weakness. They feel they can do this. They know the risks. And it's called the reckoning because they have to escape uh, from this, this dark tower. And it's called the reckoning for a reason. And I write with high stakes all the time. Anytime there's a major battle, um, the reader can know it's never just going to be a battle and it's over without consequence. There's a consequence to everything. And I think this chapter has uh, awesome action. Uh, a lot of the demonic generals do die, but there is a big, con uh, there's a, what's the word I'm, I'm looking at? Uh, consequence, I guess, for, for all this. Uh, no one gets off scot-free. And then the reader is left with, wow, like this was the moment the characters had laid down their lives for what was right. This is how serious these characters are uh, in knowing this is for the future of our world. This is what we're willing to do. Uh, and it's a very precious chapter for me. These are two very powerful chapters in your book. Um, now, for me, um, can we go to chapter six in part two? Because I liked this chapter. And again, for me, it really does emphasize the power of your writing skills in the book. Um, I like the opening gambit. So what I'm going to do, everybody, is I'm going to read it from my Kindle here. And then I'm going to ask David to tell us the rest of the story in this chapter and this part of the book. So this chapter is called The Eve of War. It's chapter six in part two. Between the high cliffs and the forest perimeter, a ninja clan was compelled to investigate the suspicious activity. They hid in trees and ditches as they scrutinized the sounds of toiled assembly. A ninja spotted the first ghastly mark of the clan's suspicions of an incursion. Torchlights illuminated the forest sector and a tall, heavily armoured warrior with a shimmering skull helmet supervised his dark troops prepare for an offensive. The warrior was equipped with a deadly sword and black and silver armour that vindicated his whirring intentions. From the high cliffs, hundreds upon hundreds of the eerie warriors came climbing horde by horde, making their way deeper into the forest. With them, lethal and devastating bombards and rocket launchers followed. Substantial function cannons and mobile rockets were next. They all gradually progressed northwest towards the open land leading to Falkus. No ninja stationed there had ever been such ferocious warriors. Never before had they ever been deceived by another force developing under their noses. They were shocked as to how the formidable army could have been concealed all this time. Michael meditated, meditated, sorry, aside the high cliffs miles from Volkus. Shinner slept peacefully in their large insulated tent that Michael had erected. 
Shinnett never would have agreed to leave Valkas if it was not for Michael's companionship. She beheld an instinctive attraction to him. It was a sensation she could not explain. In essence, she felt at peace without the feeling of vice. None of it ever came about until after Pommel. Spill the beans. Here. Yes. All right. So let's let's spill all the beans I can. Oh, so, spill all the beans. <laughs> that scene, but not is, too many. I know. I know that there, there's one part that I really shouldn't say, but um, I'll. I guess I'll say it this way. Um, so in that forest, the ninjas are the best spies, and what they've realized now is, uh, there is. It's sort of like a back and forth here, right? The, the the human army is trying to find the weaknesses to the demon plague. Well, the demon plague is trying to find out how do we attack during the day? Because we can't fight during the day. We can only attack during night. So what do we need? We need human warriors. And what they have discovered is they can uh, entrance uh, many warriors who are sort of weak-minded in that sense, to create their uh, day army, I suppose. And uh, that day army is led by the general you just uh, described, Cain. Very dangerous man, very easily uh, to seduce to this feeling like, well, if all if, if the demon plague is going to win, at least I'll be one of the demon's uh, favorite pets or something. I I'll get to live. You know what I mean? Um, so this is the the moment you realize there's an army coming anyway. You're not safe during the day. Here they come and get ready, because if it's the eve of war, there's going to be a big battle in the next chapter. So th that's definitely a really exciting spot you found. The other uh, paragraph you got with Michael, Muriel, and Sheena. Um, this is the moment you realize here, okay? Michael, Muriel is... Uh, being followed by the demons, not because they want to hurt him, because they feel he is their savior. And this is a, a moment also where the reader starts to understand he's leaving uh, other kingdoms in the night so the demons won't follow him and destroy those kingdoms. So he leaves, but he takes Shina as well now because he learns something very serious about Shina. And uh, they're going to be following the both of them. And there's a reason she has this attraction towards him. It's not just because he's this great hero who cares about people and her. Uh, she's supposed to feel an attraction to him. That's what the demon plague wants. So um, Michael Muriel knows this. And he doesn't want to succumb to this either. He understands that if they do get together, um, the consequence of that is extremely dire. So it, it, you certainly picked a good chapter. Well, let's leave it there. And if you want to exactly, the I rest can't, of the I stories, can't, I mean... if you want to know the rest of the stories, don't buy the books, everyone. Um, <laughs> David, what's next for you? Any more books coming down the line? Oh, dear. Uh, any more books? You know what? Uh, I'll tell you this. If Please. Death or Valentis is, uh, if, if Death or Valentis is successful, which I believe it will be, and I certainly hope it will be. I already have a sequel in mind. I, I have it. So the, the story ends, 
but uh, I think every good sequel is a sequel that is its own story. So I'm the kind of writer that doesn't leave readers wanting, oh no, you know, well, why did he end it there? I always end my stories, but that doesn't mean the story is over. So uh, I, I might write a sequel to it. I know my fiance is really asking for a sequel already. And for goodness sake, the book just came out, this one. So I'm going to have to really think on what I'm going to do here. But um, I'm going to do what I always do. I'll I'll start outlining and I, I guess we'll see where it goes. Okay. Who do you uh, see as your readers, you know, your market? Um, who would you like to see reading your books? All ages, young people, middle age, old fogies? I should have said that. But yes. <laughs> No, it's true. I, I think that my writing, of course, it's not for, for many young eyes. Um, some of the stuff I write, as you know, can be uh, raw. It can be real. Oh, it can be raw. Uh, oh, yes. Yes, oh, it yes. can be. And it's not, it's not just for the sake of rawness. Uh, I, I don't do that. Uh, every page I write is not wasted with any filler. Every page has a purpose leading to something or has something to offer. So it's for anyone who likes to be uh, engaged, as you said, in a great story. Whether you like fantasy or not, I really do think that uh, my work is for you. You should give it a shot. I think you might be surprised. Where can people get your books from, David? Well, um, you can find me on social media, but uh, I think my website is the best spot. It has the best deals. Um, every link you click on, will send you to the book that it's it's the cheapest version of it, but it's it's completely brand new. Uh, it's uh, maminabooks.com. So my last name, books.com. And you can get the books on Amazon as well, everybody. Oh, yeah. It's all over the internet. David B. Mamina, thank you for joining me on the show today, and I'm extremely glad you accepted my invite yet again. And I hope to interview a lot more books, and many more years. David V. Mamina, everybody. I'm Jesse Crowley. Thank you. Thanks for listening, wherever you are, watching, wherever you are. So until next time, stay safe. <laughs>